Welcome to The Bone Beat, conversations on health policy issues affecting musculoskeletal care and supporting advocacy efforts to advance access and quality. Brought to you by the American Association of Orthopedic Surgeons. Here's your host, Kristen Coltis. Welcome to this special episode of The Bone Beat Podcast. We're doing something we actually have not done before, and that is bringing on a panel, uh, a panel of our members to talk about the bundle payments for care improvement advance model. For those of you who don't know, this is a voluntary value-based model from the CMS Innovation Center. We're going to be talking about that, as well as bundled payments more generally in the transition to value-based care. You might be wondering why now, why do this special episode? Well, there's two reasons. One, we've got many AOS members who are making the decision now whether or not they want to uh, change their contracts for model year four. Uh, but there's also been a lot of news at a CMMI lately and, and discussion of whether or not these models could become more mandatory in the future. So I want to start by letting our guests introduce themselves and just briefly telling you about their involvement with BPCIA Advanced. Why don't you start, Dr. Gibson? Oh, sure, Kristen, thank you. Thanks for having us. And uh, I'm Wilford Gibson. I'm an orthopedic surgeon uh, in Virginia Beach in Norfolk and Chesapeake, Southampton Roads, uh, Virginia. I'm also the advocacy council chair for AAOS. I've been involved initially with bundle payments from the beginning. Uh, I served on the board of directors and uh, it was something that was being discussed at the time back in 2012 or so. And uh, when it started with BPCI, bundle payment care for improvement, traditional or classic, I was on board with a hospital system and it just didn't work well. So now I'm uh, involved with a convener um, and uh, it's been tremendously successful. That's that's who I am and why I'm hopeful that other orthopedic surgeons, our fellows, will recognize the tremendous value of this program and also be able to uh, have the success that we have uh, over the next uh, two years, at least, with model uh, year four that goes through uh, December 31st, 2023. And how about our incoming advocacy council chair? How about you, Dr. Douglas Lundy? Hey, I'm Doug Lundy. I'm an orthopedic trauma surgeon in Atlanta, Georgia. I am immediate past president of Resurgence Orthopedics, which is a very large orthopedic practice in Metro Atlanta of 103 orthopedic surgeons and physiatrists. We have been involved with BPCI since the beginning and now BPCI Advanced. We are working through a convener and we recently decided last week that we will opt out of BPCI starting 31 December 2020. And Chris? Hi, everyone. Um, I'm Chris Vanello. I'm the Director of Quality Improvement at Rothman Orthopedic Institute. Um, we, were, we are also a large private practice of over 220 doctors. Um, we, we operate out of three states going into our fourth state. Um, We've been in the bundle payment business since uh, 2015. We were in BPCI original. We did very well in that program, which catapulted us into uh, the commercial setting with value-based programs. And we hold 33 of those um, bundles in, um, in the Philadelphia market. 
We also were in BP, BPCI Advanced, and we dropped out of the program in December 2019 because we didn't do as well as we had previously done in the first original program. And our last panelist, Joel James from Signature. Hi, uh, Joel James, Signature Medical Group. We're a multi-specialty medical practice based in St. Louis, Missouri, with practices in the St. Louis and Kansas City metropolitan areas. Uh, Orthopedics is our largest service line. Um, And we do have uh, two orthopedic practices in Overland Park, Kansas, so actually just across the border. Um, We were pretty unique um, in BPCI. Uh, In Classic, the first BPCI program, um, we were the only orthopedic group that was also a convener, an awardee convener um, in BPCI that actually convened other um, independent orthopedic groups around the country, about 60, 60 orthopedic groups in 26 states. So we ended up actually with the largest orthopedic bundle program in BPCI Classic, um, about 1,200 physicians. Um, doing, uh, you know, in total in the program, um, uh, several uh, hundred thousand joints uh, over, you know, the five years of the program. And um, it was very successful, by and large, for about 85% of the uh, groups that were in the program because it was early, because um, there was a lot of opportunity out there for physicians to take a leadership role in managing a complete episode of cost, which they really hadn't had that opportunity to do before. Um, and, uh, and so we looked very much forward to not only being a medical group uh, and orthopedic group involved in BPCI Classic, but also a convener and looked very much forward to BPCI Advanced. We decided that they extended the program, but I have to say, and we can get more into that in the program, but it, it hasn't panned out as well um, for, especially for orthopedic groups that were in classic um, that had already um, been able to uh, reduce costs substantially and uh, be rewarded for that. But um, the reduced target pricing um, in this program has left many uh, groups disenchanted. Plus, they changed the, uh, you know, how they how they calculate target pricing. And BPCI Advanced is vastly different from how they did it in Classic, and um, it's it's replete with problems. And at any rate, um, I think um, we're finding more and more groups have been kind of disenchanted with Advanced. We have some that have been very successful uh, and will continue the program, and others that uh, will be exiting. Well, we've got a great group uh, with very different experiences and perspectives on these voluntary models, specifically BPCIA Advanced. I want to go to you, Dr. Gibson, as Advocacy Council Chair, and as you stated, someone whose practice is looking to stay in this program. Uh, Tell us about... you know, how this program has impacted AAOS members and and how it's fared in terms of reaching its promise, its intent of reducing the cost of care without sacrificing quality. You know, our AAOS strategic plan that we 
just uh, approved about a year ago that goes through 2023 says our vision is we're the trusted leaders in advancing musculoskeletal health. So whatever we do, we want to uh, maintain or improve quality, but we also want to be able to be uh, good stewards and reduce cost. And that together improves value for our patients and the payers, including Medicare. Uh, one of our goals of the strategic plan was to equip our members to thrive in value-based environments and advance the quality of orthopedic care. So as the Advocacy Council Chair, I, I took this on as a responsibility. Uh, clearly, our AAOS has supported uh, these programs. Uh, we support voluntary programs. Uh, what we're not talking about tonight by design is the CJR which came out perhaps about the same time a little earlier, comprehensive care for joint replacement. Those were in metropolitan statistical areas, uh, MSAs, and they were mandatory. And those have, and what I've seen and from hearing, uh, there are Centers for Medicare and Medicaid Innovation, CMMI speakers, they haven't done as well for saving Medicare money. And some of that has to do with the or misaligned goals with hospitals and physicians, in my experience, trying to work together. Uh, we came in, and I'm now shifting off my advocacy council chair hat to my practice. Our practice at first, we had no experience with this. Uh, it was difficult to convince a number of our partners that this is something we should look into and try to do. There were a number having tremendous success at the time, and but a large number were not involved. And uh, we sort of went in, tiptoed in or, you know, tested the water first with one of our hospital systems who had already selected their convener. Some of the problems are that hospitals have multiple bundles. So there's no focus on orthopedics or musculoskeletal. And I think that's, for me, part of the problem was it got so complicated. We had no idea what we were doing. It's retrospective. So we didn't know when the actions we took would take effect. And it was, and just to be quite honest, it was a mess. And um, the hospital later on, when we had BPCIA come about, we saw that as an opportunity to either do it as a physician group practice or with a convener. And we chose to do it with a convener, still not certain that we knew exactly what we were doing. But uh, when they made BPCI, Bundle Payment for Care Improvement, advanced, and advanced alternative payment model, you know, in the meantime, we were doing all these MIPS, uh, merit-based incentive pr uh, payment systems, that I think all of us also knew those, you know, sprung from meaningful use and were, you know, really just a mess also. But this was the first that I saw that really had the opportunity to decrease cost and, and improve quality of care and therefore improve value. So, uh, it looked like a great thing. We signed up when it first came out, I believe, in 2018. Uh, it's a, a two-year deal. Uh, then we were had sprung on us the 50% professional fee cap, which really killed it. It would have killed it for everyone. And we fought long and hard uh, for the, the, the AAOS as well as our conveners together realized it would kill the program. So we made trips to Baltimore and uh, visited with uh, CMMI and CMS, and we finally got, you know, as best as we could, that 50% professional fee cap lifted so that the net patient reconciliation amounts 
could flow to the people that generated those savings, particularly the doctors, which is what I'm about as the advocacy council chair for the AAOS. I'm, I'm about our fellows. And so it works. And so as long as you implement the changes of care redesign and risk stratify your patients and risk and optimize their care prior to surgery, you will have better outcomes and the cost will be less for Medicare. And that's what my experience has been to the tune of, you know, our practice. Uh, the NIPRA for over a period of year, you know, what we targeted was uh, uh, for a two-year cycle is a potential of a couple of million dollars. And we've, we've come in pretty much uh, pretty close to that. So I think it's a tremendous opportunity. Those who are dropping out, I'd be happy to speak to you, but uh, I can tell you how you can make it work and how you can at least while the program's still alive, uh, generate cost savings and therefore gain sharing from Medicare for your practice. Thanks, Dr. Gibson. I think that's a a great segue into uh, getting some others' take. Um, Specifically, Dr. Lundy, you most recently uh, decided to to drop out. Um, What were some of the considerations that you had in mind given your experience with the program in the past? Uh, One of the interesting things about bundled payments that I've learned is that Things vary so substantially across the country. There is very little consistency in how each market works with this. Uh, through the forum, uh, we've gotten to know a lot of the other large groups in the country and tried to understand how they were using bundles of all different kinds, the commercial bundles, CJR and BPCI. And their experience and our experience many times was quite different. One of the interesting things about the Atlanta market is that the payers, the commercial payers, are just not interested in bundles at all. And we have multiple multiple times tried to engage with them. Hearing everything that was coming out of the association, uh, we realized that we had to get in the bundled uh, payment understanding in order to better uh, survive as a group. And so BPCI was really the only methodology for us to really learn how to make our practice work with that. So we dove in the deep end and really did quite well under BPCI and then initially under BPCI advanced. Uh, As Wilford was saying, we also have a convener. Uh, We felt that with everything on our plate, it was just smarter to go through it with that method. And we were going to continue in BPCI advanced, but with the Clinical episode service line groups coming in, we no longer could pick and choose which one of the specific bundles we wanted to be involved in. And when we looked at the service line group and what it would do with with us overall, it quickly pushed us down into the red. And so as a result, we've decided that from a business perspective, we can't continue in this. We were getting pretty good at bundles and we were doing quite well as a group with it, but with the the main issue was was with service line groups. One problem that we also have is that uh, the target price really, for whatever reason in Atlanta, would quickly get decelerated down to a point that it was the dreaded race to the bottom that we all hear about. Some of our extremely uh, efficient total joint surgeons were just, their margin was really pretty much shot after uh, several pay periods of doing this. And Chris, you said at the start that that Rothman had dropped out even longer. Did you say December of this past year? Yes. 
Christy. December this past year. So do you share this similar sentiment as Dr. Lundy, um, or do you have a different perspective that you want to uh, share with our orthopedic members? No, I definitely have the same perspective of Dr. Lundy and Dr. Gibson. I think Dr. Lundy and I are, uh, our practices are in the same situation. You know, uh, you know, the BPCI initiative definitely has reduced uh, Medicare costs, especially in the uh, joint arthroplasty population. And um, as Dr. Gibson said, it really did improve outcomes as long as you did it the right way and not worried about just reducing costs, but reducing costs appropriately and managing utilization of post-operative services. But to that extent, you have to put infrastructure around that. And I think that's one thing Medicare might be missing. Um, You know, you have to hire nurse navigators. We actually built ambulatory surgery centers to decrease costs in conjunction with our partnership with the commercial payers nationally and locally. Um, Technology. We really put a a lot of um, effort and expense into these programs. And in the beginning with Medicare, we did really well. And and then we didn't. And um, adding the hip fracture, the fracture cases really hurt us as we acquired new practices. That didn't help us either. Um, We really saw a huge decrease in our targets. And the ironic thing was our, our convener, we have a convener too. Um, our quality metrics and our utilization was top 10 percentile in the country, but we were losing a lot of money. So that was for mainly fracture care and total joint arthroplasty. We were doing okay with the other, we went in all, all procedures um, and spine and shoulder and total ankle. And we were doing okay with that because, you know, we had a little bit more low hanging fruit to, uh, to work with, but we just didn't want to take the risk. And then as things went to the outpatient setting, that was a whole other ball game. You know, some of those cases were taken out of the bundle. I know they've been put back in, but that's something that we should consider advocating that we have a special target price for outpatient um, Medicare patients. But it's been it's it's been a struggle, but we have definitely stayed in our value-based programs on the commercial side and are doing very well. We're starting to get in some prospective bundles and uh, more risk per member per month kind of arrangements. We're hoping to um, get that going in the next two years. So yeah, that I mean, we just made a decision. It was just too risky for our practice, especially being in four states, you know, and trying to manage sixty-four facilities that we operate in. Right. And that's why we have Joel James with Signature here um, to talk about the the work that a convener can do in aiding orthopedic surgeon members and practices and entering these kind of programs. So Joel, uh, you know, I understand that you help you help bear some of this risk. You help manage the relationships with CMS. What are some ways that you think the program could be improved for future model years? Well, that's a that's a really great question, Kristen. <laughs> and I would like to say, here's the answer. Um, so, I, I, I actually, I just want to go back and, and mention a couple of things because I'm I'm just hearing, uh, you know, from Chris and Dr. Lundy and Dr. Gibson. You know, we are hearing this from the same similar stories from all our groups that that we convene for. And it's not that different 
um, you know, there was a lot more success in classic uh, than uh, than so far in advance for most groups, I would say. Um, but um, it, I I think the the biggest issue from and I'm I'm you know I, I'm you know director of policy and government relations for signature from a policy perspective is in, in these programs like BPCI, which is a voluntary program, and it's a policy-driven program. It's not, it's, not, uh, it's not, you know, mandatory. And so it's not designed um, around administrative rules where you have to have public comment. And so they can make decisions, CMLI can make these decisions kind of on the fly and, and change policy, um, you know, pretty, pretty much you know, and uh, you know, and it can it can be it can be really beneficial in a way because it could be a beneficial policy change, like we had in classic. Um, we had several changes that were done. Precedence was one where we didn't have precedence initially uh, with hospitals that were in BPCI, and that was changed. Uh, as well as um, we we were. Uh, we got forbearance from losses because they weren't accounting for patient attribution correctly. Um, and so those changes were able to be made really quickly. Um, it, I think, and we've told this to CMI and CMS in many meetings, the biggest, impl- uh, the biggest impediment to success in these programs for physicians, for physician groups, hospitals alike is is these quick changes in policy that might not seem that quick to, um, you know, to policymakers in Washington. But, you know, when you're working cases and you're trying to project what, where you're going to be a year from now and your opportunity in a program like this and doing the best to figure out the convoluted target pricing that um, they've come up with and how to calculate that, um, and then that changes kind of midstream. It really catches groups off guard, and it makes it very hard to sustain success in a program like this. And I think it was Dr. Lundy that was mentioning the service line groupings. That's a change that just came out a few months ago. Um, it's going to be implemented model year four, January 2021. And we have a lot of groups that are that basically are in that same boat. I don't know that we can that we can go forward in the program since they're changing this particular aspect. So the policy changes and it's, you know, conveners can really stay up on these and we try our best to advocate and AOS, AOS has been a tremendous um, supporter and, um, and, and certainly very beneficial from helping us in, in meetings and so forth on the Hill, as well as with CMI, CMI and CMS. But um you know, they're only going to take it so far. They're only going to bend so far in these programs. And, um, you know, so the convener, as much as we try to protect our groups and do what we can to help them manage through um, what can be a very tricky process in managing uh, a bundle payment program through Medicare, um, it, it can be a, a very daunting task uh, because, again, orthopedics is just one type of episode class that they are looking across the board at all kinds of episodes and, and, and bundles around the country. 
um, though we certainly take up a significant amount of spend uh, on the surgical side. So it, it, it is a very high priority for them, but um, I will say it's been a pretty frustrating experience. Um, so moving toward their decision to move toward mandatory brings up a whole nother set of issues, which um, I don't know if we'll have time to get into, but it raises a lot of issues. Yeah, I actually want to get into that because I think that is the aspect of this topic that's so timely. If the agency, if they're considering making these bundled payment programs mandatory, I'm curious to know uh, this group's perspective on how that may um, impact orthopedic surgeons. Before you answer, I just have to say, I know the AOS... um, is not in favor of them becoming mandatory. Uh, we we really want our doctors to be able to choose to join these and have those flexibilities. But if that's the decision made um, from healthcare policymakers, it's one that we will have to adapt to and um, support our members in. So throwing it out there, who wants to start? You know, what's going to happen if this does become mandatory? I think it's a bad idea to make it mandatory. We've seen what happened with CJR. Um, The smaller private practices will never be able to keep up with that. You know, look at practices like, you know, ours that are on this call. We have a whole quality department. We have a whole population health department. It it takes a lot to achieve success in these programs from a quality and a cost standpoint, especially when you're doing well. You know, you have to keep, you know, it's like a race to the bottom. And, you know, they should really look at restructuring a program. And I know AOS has been a huge advocate for that, but even down to looking at their quality metrics that make almost no sense from an orthopedic standpoint that they um, measure us on. Kristen, this is Wilford, Wilford Gibson. And and maybe to answer that and stay on the same theme, I agree the mandatory. And you, you said that the point that I was going to make, the AOS does not support mandatory bundles. And I think what, Chris said is that very true. When we started or the Medicare started with the CJR, uh, there was 75 metropolitan statistical areas, MSAs across the nation. Most of them were in urban areas around academic centers. And there was a number that immediately were cut out down to about 64 and then after that, they fell down to about 32. And I'm not even exactly sure now, but I th- think they're single or double digits up to maybe 16 at the max that are still up and running. And we've, we've encouraged those to stay, uh, and for Medicare to keep them going because we have a number of, uh, fellows having success in those, uh, bundle payment programs that are mandatory with CJR. But one size does not fit all. And the unfortunate thing with those mandatory bundles with CJR, they sometimes cut out others in the same community from being able to do a voluntary bundle because it has precedence, which leads to another subject about accountable care organizations we can talk about again. But uh, I think the mandatory aspect is a bad idea. I think a number of groups... uh, I'm not sure what would happen if they made it mandatory. It may have a negative impact on access for Medicare. I I don't know that uh, a number of private practice groups would continue that. How about Dr. Lundy, Joel? I know we're wrapping up soon, so I I just want to know if 
Um, you all want to add anything more on maybe ways we could improve BPCIA advance if it remains voluntary and, and how those mandatory models, if there are future, um, may impact our membership? Yeah, Chris, I was, I was chair of the uh, Health Policy Committee of the Orthopedic Trauma Association, and we wrote a white paper on the shift bundle, uh, which we haven't brought up yet, but that was the surgical uh, femoral fracture and hip fracture bundle uh, that was supposed to fix the whole hip fracture issue with CJR. And uh, our white paper eventually was signed on by the OTA and then the association, and it went up to uh, Department of Health and Human Services from there, and strongly encouraging them that the shift bundle didn't work. And, and as was brought up earlier, the, the fracture surgery, uh, specifically the trauma patients, often will blow up bundles, uh, even if you get it very well, tightly controlled. And as you can look across the country, the practices that have a lot of variability, which, you know, is basically trauma surgery, tends to really wreck a lot of well-designed bundles and practices that really do a good job at it. And so making this mandatory, as we all know, politics is extremely local, right? Everything often occurs on the local level. And even though there are many similarities across the country, everybody's demographics are different and their systems are different. And if you don't have good downrange discharge of, uh, plans and good ways to get people out with lower costs of care, and you can control the variability, such as from the fracture side, it doesn't really work that well. Ironically, we did pretty well with uh, cost control under COVID, be uh, specifically with the fracture surgery, because all of a sudden, all the families wanted to bring grandma home. They didn't want her to go to a facility because they were afraid she was going to get coronavirus. And so all of a sudden, we were really easy, easily able to get people out of the hospital and get them home under those plans and didn't have to fight the families quite as much as we did before and now subsequently afterwards. I'm surprised we are just now mentioning COVID. You know, it's amazing how much has changed in this last year, not only for our members, but for healthcare as a whole. Um, Joel, I want to go back to you in closing because um, as a convener, you help uh, surgeons like Dr. Lundy and Gibson uh, sort through and navigate these decisions. Um, what's your take on the future of these bundled payments for value-based care? Yeah, I think I, th uh, um, I think there could. I think there's a, a possibility uh, It may be narrow, but I think there's a possibility that they actually might work. I'm not, you know, we're opposed to, to mandatory bundles. Um, actually, CMMI has asked us for our opinions on some issues related. If they, if they are mandatory, what has to happen? You know, pooling of risk is a really important issue that I think is pretty much overlooked. I think the idea that physicians are just going to take on financial risk is one thing that's been overlooked, I think, from the independent physician organization perspective. Because physicians are making, you know, they're using their own income, right, to, to get into these programs. They're hiring new staff. They're purchasing or helping build out and new analytic models. They're making all kinds of um, decisions financially that aren't really being taken into account in the model cost. And, and they're already at financial risk is one of the arguments I've made to CMMI. And then you have the discount that's taken on top of that just to get into the program. 
So um, CIMI and CMS have both clearly seen what happens when you force more and more groups to take financial risk like they did with ACOs. They had a huge dropout um, a couple of years ago when they tried to accelerate the, the risk-taking in, in accountable care organizations. Um, and something similar would happen in, if you're going to make bundles mandatory and force uh, greater financial risk. Because I don't think, I don't know that there's, you know, I think the role of the convener has been important. I think we have, um, you know, a lot of groups have felt like we've provided and other conveners have provided valuable service in terms of uh, navigating, as you said, Kristen, the, the you know, the, the bundle payment um, maze uh, and um, kind of the convoluted nature of the program for, from target pricing and so forth. But um, I'm not sure they want conveners, I mean, CMI, CMS wants conveners in program like this much longer. I think they want physicians to be taking more direct financial risk, which that's fine, but they also have to allow for more pooling of risk across physician, uh, across physicians, physician groups uh, for that, I think, to happen effectively. I also think... I, you know, to me, bundle payments has demonstrated both in classic and advanced the value, the real value of physician leadership in, in making um, not only the surgical decision, right, but managing with their case manager, nurse navigator, and so forth, the, the, the real care redesign that's gone in to create better outcomes. And they, we have, they have created better outcomes for these patients than existed 10 years ago. Um, uh, but, you know, identifying physician leadership and changing this kind of ridiculous uh, precedent structure, you know, where precedence is either timing driven or model driven, depending on what model you're in. And when you got into it, that determines your precedence of whether, you know, you keep your patient in the program or they drop out. Uh, and as we have argued, you know, since really uh, in classic, uh, the, the the patient the, and the physician relationship is paramount, and that should take precedence. If if your patient's coming to you for a knee replacement, and you happen to be doing a case at a hospital that's also in BPCI or is in CJR, and there's a different precedence rule, and and your patient's going to drop out of the program because of that, that makes zero sense. So if it's going to be, if they're, you know, and it sounds like they're seriously going to move toward mandatory programs, um, th that model really has to change drastically because everyone's going to be in a mandatory program. So it's really, there's an opportunity, I think, with, to show real physician, you know, physicians will gain greater autonomy in managing their patient across any kind of model. Um, I don't know if that would happen, but that would be certainly the goal I think we should be should be shooting for because physician leadership and autonomy has been shown has been proven at least in orthopedics as far as I can see uh, in in bundles and and the kind of outcomes that have been achieved and the cost savings that have been achieved. I love that note to end on uh, the physician autonomy and being able to lead these programs. That's definitely the highest priority of the AOS. So 
Thank you all for coming on and having this really interesting conversation. It was great having all your different experiences with BBCIA and uh, and your different perspectives from your unique practices. So hopefully this gives AOS members some valuable points to consider. Um, and I'll end by saying that we know many of our members are working in good faith to adopt these models. And Uh, where the thresholds for participation are too high and there's too many barriers, that's where uh, your AOS comes in and and your advocacy team in Washington. So um, reach out to us and learn more visiting aaos.org under our Medicare payment and quality payment program issue pages. And we look forward to the next episode. Thank you for listening to this episode of The Bone Beat from the American Association of Orthopedic Surgeons. For more information on this topic and other AAOS efforts to shape the future of musculoskeletal care, please visit aaos.org slash advocacy.